Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome to Dr. M's Spa Newsletter Audio Cast. This is volume 11, letters number 47 and 49, which happen to correspond with coronavirus updates number 48 and 49. So we are apparently heading back towards a place of possible trouble after periods of normalcy in North Carolina. We do not have a big spike in cases yet, but there is a rise in smaller uh, areas where there are more unvaccinated folks. Um, we still have very particular problems in unvaccinated populations and those with advancing aging comorbid disease um, layered on top of this vaccination status. But as with all of the previous newsletters uh, related to COVID, we are still in good shape with a 99 plus percent chance of survival for everybody regardless of vaccination and then 99.99 percent chance of survival if you do vaccinate. So according to the American Medical Association, 96% of all doctors, medical physicians in this country have received their COVID vaccine nationally. That says a lot about the safety of this vaccine because physicians are loath to receive interventions that they have not studied well for safety. As we personally have all seen the train wrecks of intervention failures in our patients over the, over the decades. Um, I hope this information is useful to you the listeners that are still on the fence about vaccinating yourselves or your teenage children, um, because the unfortunate reality is if you get sent down the wrong path through the wrong data, you are putting yourself at a, at a greater risk for a bad outcome. So let's get on to the quick hits. A new and fascinating study in Nature has looked at the time of day in relation to immune cell activity, which could be and likely is critical to how we respond to pathogens in nature as well as vaccines in general. The science says there are cells called dendritic cells, which can migrate around the body to capture and then present protein fragments from pathogens and other protein sources to professional immune cells called T cells for immune training and pathogen killing. The circadian timing or rhythm is essentially the way our system reacts to the time of day that corresponds to the rise and fall of the sun. The animal model studied is the mouse, which is a nocturnal creature, so the results will be the opposite of what humans would be expected to see. The group found that the dendritic cells migrate from the skin to the lymphatic vessels and on the, onto the lymph nodes, most often during the early morning hours. Um, the time after sleep has just finished. This was a study by Holtkamp et al. in 2021. What we can glean from the data that they noted is that we as humans have evolved to be most functional immunologically and metabolically when our bodies follow the rise and fall of the sun. If we stay up all night and sleep during the day, we are flipping nature on its head with negative consequences, likely as has been shown epidemiologically through study in night shift workers. My idea is this. Don't ever take a vaccine after being up all night from work or bad sleep. Make sure that you are in balance with your circadian rhythms before challenging your immune system in any way. Quick hit number two. If you add an mRNA vaccine or the AstraZeneca variety and then contract the Delta strain of SARS-2, your risk of spreading the virus to others is roughly half as great as a non-vaccinated person. However, that protection only lasts you about three months. Again, this is only if you get the breakthrough Delta infection. The vaccine is preventing breakthroughs at a great rate. 
The take-home point is that once vaccinated, your risk of a breakthrough infection remains very, very low. But if you have one, you are likely to spread it just like the unvaccinated person three months after dose two. This comes from EYRE Iyer et al. 2021. Quick hit number three. Sira Madad, Monica Gandhi, and Ashish Jha wrote an article in Washington Post back in April with a key piece of when do we change course and live with COVID reality. Quote, as clinicians and epidemiologists, we see the tipping point at which restrictions like masks and social distancing can be lifted by looking at two parameters. First, severe disease from COVID-19 is represented by hospitalizations, and second, vaccination rates. The goal for hospitalizations from COVID-19 should be less than five cases per 100,000 or about 16,000 hospitalizations in the nation. This is lower than hospitalization rates for influenza during the height of the flu season, which normally shows an average of about 20 to 40 hospitalizations per 100,000 people. But mortality for hospitalized COVID patients remains very high. Further, the coronavirus vaccines are all much more effective than the current vac influenza vaccines. And as such, the Israeli experience suggests that once we manage to get at least 40% of the people at least one dose, we can expect substantial and sustained drop in infection rates. Of course, this percentage will be influenced by other factors such as the underlying rate of immunity from previous infections. It's important to look at these quantitative numbers as key metrics for easing restrictions in each state. It will be gradual process based on data, not dates. States will need to continue to be nimble and vary restrictions accordingly during this transition phase of vaccine rollout. This article is written well before Delta was the main player, and now we have Omicron. However, the principles are still the same. As of today, vaccination rates are climbing with 221 million Americans vaccinated with one dose and a further 193 million fully vaccinated and 19 million booster doses given for high-risk groups. That means that the risk of hospitalization and death nationally is significantly lower than at any time in the pandemic. Data is data, and the vaccination rate, although not perfect, is great for reducing hospital overload due to COVID. There are many that are still spinning this as a mess with the influenza virus on the way that we need to remain masked, distance, and other early pandemic policies. To them, I say, let's keep a positive vaccine message and also a healthy lifestyle message that gives us control over our health so that our immune systems are well-maintained for the next 100 years as the influenza and now SARS-2 viruses are likely with us here forever. Let us file science-based guidelines for masking and distancing as, thoughtful, as the thoughtful authors have done. Politicians should not be making these decisions willy-nilly anymore. Strong opinion of mine is that it is very clear to me now that this country needs to prioritize the health of children through quality nutrition and support in school. There are no more acceptable excuses for remote learning, poor education, and poor nutrition for our future generation of leaders and workers. In-person learning is the only way to teach our grade school children full stop. My tone is stern and I'm fully aware of it. I feel that strongly about our children's health. With a $1.7 trillion budget, plan being discussed in Congress. How is incredible school food not priority number one? It would be if I were in the White House. Education and nutrition would be the main priorities for all Americans through college, well before discussing military, foreign aid, social programs, etc. If we set a goal to be absolutely sure that every child from 0 to 21 never has to think about quality food or quality education, we'd be well on our way to a great society. What I could do with $1.7 trillion, incredible. For me, section two below on school closure, you can read some more about this. Quick hit number four. From the CDC executive summary, 
Available evidence shows that fully vaccinated individuals and those previously infected with SARS-CoV-2 each have a low risk of subsequent infection for at least six months. Data are presently insufficient to determine an antibody titer threshold that indicates when an individual is protected from infection. At this time, there's no FDA-authorized or approved test that providers or the public can use to reliably determine whether a person is protected from infection. The immunity provided by vaccine and prior infection are both high but not complete, i.e. 100%. Multiple studies have shown that the antibody titers correlate with protection at a population level, but protective titers at the individual, individual level remain unknown. Whereas there is a wide range in antibody titers in response to infection with SARS-CoV-2, completion of a primary vaccine series, especially with mRNA vaccines, typically leads to a more consistent and higher titer initial antibody response. For certain populations, such as the elderly and immunocompromised, the levels of protection may be de decreasing following both vaccination and infection. Current evidence indicates that the level of protection may not be the same for all viral variants. Substantial immunological evidence and a growing body of epidemiologic evidence indicate that vaccination after infection significantly enhances protection and further reduces risk of reinfection, which lays the foundation for the CDC recommendations. The CDC has put quality information into the summary. Two caveats remain for debate, though. If you had natural infection, one dose of the mRNA vaccine appears to be the answer to great immunity based on the data unless you have a known inability to have a solid vaccine response which occurs with elderly age, severe inflammation-based obesity, immunocompromised status, and some rare genetic variants of immune response. Second, variants are not more deadly once vaccinated yet. Omicron will be a question mark. Number five, vaccinate the five to 12-year-old age range. Does the dose matter if your child is on the cusp of age 12? Five experts in immunology answer this question in an article that you can get to via the link in the newsletter. The long and short is that these experts' minds, in their experts' minds, is to vaccinate as soon as possible regardless of dose given. This age group has an exceedingly low risk of MIS and or severe acute disease, but that number is not zero. So each parent or guardian must decide to risk this small chance of illness or vaccinate. It's that simple. Number six, opinion. In the South, we are now a few months into packed stadium concerts and other indoor-outdoor mass human events, and we are in a good place overall with COVID numbers. This is the first and largest sign that we are quite far down the path of returning to normalcy. I've personally been to many of the above events, both in and out of doors. Delta is still the same animal, so we are moving closer to having enough people with quality immunity to prevent big outbreaks. I was at a coffee shop the other day and was chastised for not wearing a mask when I walked in. Yet 90% of the room's occupants were unmasked because they were dining or drinking coffee. You cannot make this stuff up. It is comedy to ask the person standing in line to wear the mask when the people that are actually spending the most time in the room and could be the super spreaders are unmasked and there's no problem. It's pretty crazy how we do these things. We need to follow some logical reasoning when applying, when, when applying science to decision making. Number seven, more on risk of breakthrough Ill issues once vaccinated from the state of New York their Department of Health, they had looked at some data from the October 24 uh, this year, and they noted 120,000 laboratory-confirmed breakthrough cases of COVID-19 among fully vaccinated people in New York State, which corresponded to roughly 1% of the population of the fully vaccinated people 12 years and over. They had 8,000 hospitalizations with COVID-19 among fully vaccinated people in New York State, which corresponds to 0.07% of the population of fully vaccinated people 12 years and over. 
The results indicate that laboratory-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infections and hospitalizations with COVID-19 have been uncommon events among the population who have been fully vaccinated, and they are greater than 14 days past their second dose. This data set is clear that 7 per 10,000 persons will be hospitalized with COVID once fully vaccinated. They do not give any death data, but we know that it will be another log fold less. The other piece of data that is missing is the age group of the admitted, which likely skews older significantly based on other data sets to date, as well as known immune activity with age. Number eight, variants. There are 10 being monitored by the CDC. Only Delta is a variant of concern and there are no variants of high consequence. All previously discussed variants have faded out. Here are the only two new ones with possible but mostly meaningless interests. A30 is a new variant from Africa, noted in the spring of 2021. Some variations in the spike protein, however, is not outcompeting Delta. B uh, is AT.4.2 is a sublineage of Delta that is circulating in a few states, but again, marginally increased infectivity, but no increased morbidity to mortality. At the time that I wrote this newsletter, Omicron wasn't uh, in the news, but now that it is, uh, it will be discussed in a, in a newsletter coming up in two days. So you can read that one before it's in the audio cast version. But just suffice it to say is it's going to take about two or three weeks before we know much about Omicron, other than the fact that it's about 30 mutations, 10 of which are in the spike protein, and appears to be out-competing Delta in South Africa. But stay tuned for that information when it comes. Okay, section two, the calamity of school closures and Zoom. I'm reading a quote here. School closures made up more than one-fourth of all public health interventions in the COVID database that were implemented from January to June of 2020. The right to an accessible, affordable education is protected under, under Article 26 of the uh, Department of uh, Human Resources in the United States. Epidemiologically, in-person school settings were initially considered a high-risk environment for the spread of COVID-19, but updated data analysis considered them to be a lower-risk environment regarding, for trans regarding transmission, especially at the elementary school level. School closures have profound consequences for students' learning, social well-being, and mental health, as well as the ability of parents to be at work. While various governments have provided virtual education due to in-person school closures, it is not feasible to guarantee quality education or equal access to virtual learning during the pandemic due to inequities in resources, such as internet access, and a parent's availability to supervise children adequately. Many of these inequities were pre-existing or exacerbated during this pandemic. Thus, this disruption of learning inevitably results in substantial educational gaps for children across the world. The effect of educational gaps has been shown both historically and currently to negatively impact learning and life outcomes. A mere three-month school closure could reduce students' long-term learning by year, as suggested by modeling simulations. School disruption during World War II was found to be associated with significant income loss 30 years later in life. School closures also lead to increased prevalence and exacerbations of mental health issues such as anxiety and depression among students. School closure place vulnerable children at higher risk for food insecurity, and in many low- and middle-income countries, lack of access to education puts girls in particular at increased risk of child marriage, gender-based violence, sexual assault, and teen pregnancy. For example, the rate of child marriage in Malawi increased 83% from March to May of 2020 compared to 2019 and the rate of sexual assault went up 151%. Given the child bridges are more likely to drop out 
excuse me, the, given that child brides are more likely to drop out of school and face gender-based violence, protecting access to education, particularly for girls, should be an imperative in the COVID-19 response, especially in low-income countries. This comes from Zweig et al. in 2021. The more and more of these net negatives for our children, they will show up over time. We need to remain hypervigilant to these, the needs of these children over the coming years and vow to never repeat this process again. In-school learning should be the only answer. Okay, moving on now to COVID update number 49, which was released uh, two weeks ago. There is a link to a really cool YouTube video on how the mRNA vaccine works in video form. It's worth your time. Okay, let's dive into the quick hits for this week. Number one, diet and death. Finally, someone writes a quality article after 21 months of time has gone by. In a well-written piece, Helena Evich tackles a topic at the national level that I've been waiting for a long time to see. She writes, quote, In Washington, there has been no such wake-up call about the link between diet-related diseases and the pandemic. There is no national strategy. There is no system-wide approach, even as researchers increasingly recognize that obesity is a disease that is driven not by a lack of willpower, but a modern society and food system that's almost perfectly designed to encourage the overeating of empty calories, along with more stress, less sleep, and less daily exercise, setting millions on a path to poor health outcomes that is extremely difficult to break from. Glickman noted that the country's leading voices on coronavirus, including Anthony Fauci, don't focus on the underlying conditions and what could be done about them long term. Instead, the focus is solely on vaccines, which have been proven to be safe and effective. They hardly ever talk about prevention, Glickman said. It's missing. It's a gigantic gap in the discussion about how healthcare relates to COVID and how it relates to prevention of disease, end quote. This article is a start, but we need a lot more public messaging about the risks of food and disease. In our race to control an uncontrollable pandemic, we allowed our heads of medicine, including Dr. Fauci, to flip-flop around on the science, get themselves tied to untruths and scandals, which in, in effect torpedoed an amazing vaccine effort that has saved countless lives. Trust evaporated rapidly among many lay people and medical providers alike. There were a lot of intelligent people asking serious questions that needed to be met with science and understanding, but instead were met with only censorship and more distrust. I have so much sadness for those that got stuck in the information gap and paid the price for their lives by not being vaccinated or learning how to take care of themselves through health choices around diet and sleep and exercise. The science was there, but the politics ruined the clear science and the truth. Most importantly, the government needs to stop subsidizing the staple crops of corn, soy, and wheat, which drive the engine of cheap, mass-produced, poor-quality food, and instead pay farmers to produce high-quality vegetables, fruits, and meats for mass consumption. Let's make soda $6 per can and an apple 30 cents. Man, wouldn't that be a step towards health? I hear many say that we don't want an nanny state telling us what to eat. I agree. We already have an nanny state funding all the garbage food that is driving us in the wrong direction. Two options exist for me here. We subsidize nothing at all, or we subsidize, subsidize only high-quality nourishment. They're just my two cents on this, folks. Quick hit number two. What are the antecedent risk factors of COVID-induced disease in young children? Quote, approximately 30% of hospitalized children had severe COVID-19 and 
one half of a percent died during this during a hospitalization. Among hospitalized children aged less than two years, chronic lung disease, neurologic disorders, cardiovascular disease, prematurity, and airway abnormalities were associated with severe COVID-19. Among hospitalized children aged 2 to 17, feeding tube dependence, diabetes mellitus, and obesity were associated with severe COVID-19. Severe disease occurred among 12 per 100,000 children aged less than 18 years and was highest among infants, Hispanic children and non-Hispanic black children, end quote, Woodruff et al. 2021. This group of children should absolutely be lined up for COVID vaccine based on the current information now that the vaccine is available for 5-12 year old age range. Number three, how useful is masking? In a new study from MedRxIV, we see that masks show benefit at reducing SARS-2 transmission when they're utilized in poor indoor prolonged exposure settings greater than three hours, i.e. work or school environments with poor ventilation. This comes from Andreco et al. 2021. Masking and social distancing, social distancing remain a useful tool during a high volume outbreak setting like SARS-CoV-2. The overall benefit remains modest based on most studies to date. Number four. And I quote, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic is now better controlled in settings with access to fast and reliable testing and highly effective vaccination rollouts. Several studies have found that people who recovered from COVID-19 and tested seropositive for anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies had low rates of SARS-CoV-2 reinfection. There are still looming questions surrounding the strength and duration of this and such protection compared with that from vaccination. We reviewed studies published in PubMed from inception to September 20 from inception of the pandemic to September 20th of 2021 and found well-conducted biological studies showing protective immunity after infection. Furthermore, multiple epidemiologic and clinical studies, including studies during the recent period of predominantly Delta variant transmission, found that the risk of repeat SARS-CoV-2 infection decreased by 80 to 100% among those who had COVID-19 previously. The reported studies were large and conducted throughout the world. Another laboratory-based study that analyzed the test resulted in 9,000 people with previous COVID-19 from December of 2019 to November of 2020 found that only 0.7% became reinfected. In a study conducted by the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, those who had not previously been infected had a COVID-19 rate of 4.3 per 100, whereas those who had been previously infected had a COVID rate of 0 per 100. Furthermore, a study conducted in Austria found that the frequency of hospitalization due to repeated infection was 5 per 14,840, or 0.03%, and the frequency of death due to repeated infection was 1 per 14,840, or 0.01%. Due to the strong association of biological basis for protection, clinicians should consider counseling recovered patients on their risk of reinfection and document previous infection status in medical records. This comes from us from Kojima et al. 2021. Again, we see data that the medical system should be tracking and documenting natural infection as a risk reduction factor for the nation in SARS-CoV-2 transmission and severe disease. The persistence of the policymakers on not recognizing natural infection as a sign of immune recognition and resolution for most is again driving more governmental mistrust and poor understanding of correct messaging. Five, COVID vaccine for five to 12 year age range. What do we know? 
The Pfizer study was very, very small and had only 2,268 children in it, with 1,518 receiving vaccine doses three weeks apart while the remainder received placebo. Remember that we need to have north of 50 to 100,000 patients vaccinated before we can see side effects like myocarditis signal for the teenagers. Thus, we have a way to go to answer the side effect question. However, that will change within the next two months as many doses are being rolled out now. Roughly 2 million doses have been given by November 21st of this year. By two months, we will see any signals and side effects if they exist. Quote, adverse effects were similar to those reported among older children and adults in frequency and severity, including pain at the injection site, fatigue, and the headache. The study, however, was insufficiently large to assess risks of rare adverse events such as myocarditis and pericarditis that have been observed in young men 18 to 25 years of age after receiving mRNA vaccines. In these young men, cardiac risks were the highest within the first week following the second mRNA dose, and most cases were clinically mild and resolved quickly. The cardiac risk in teenaged individuals varies, but is estimated to be 180 cases per 1 million fully vaccinated males, 12 to 20, excuse me, 12 to 15 years of age, and 200 cases per 1 million for fully vaccinated males 16 to 17 years of age. End quote. This comes to us from Moss et al. in 2021. Again, this is just data, as I am no longer giving my opinion on taking this vaccine. But a review article by Dr. Knight and colleagues has shed a bright spotlight on disease risk. And you can get the link to that uh, in the newsletter for um, this episode number 49 of COVID. Okay, quick hit number six. Healthcare is in a crisis as staffing is a widespread problem across the nation. In a recent article in The Atlantic, we read, quote, Morning Consult. A survey research company says that 18% of healthcare workers have quit since the pandemic began, while 12% have been laid off. Stories about these departures have been trickling out, but they might portend a bigger exodus. Morning Consult in the same survey found that 31% of the remaining healthcare workers have considered leaving their employer, while the American Association of Critical Nurses found that 66% of acute and critical care nurses have thought about quitting nursing entirely. This comes from Young et al., 2021. This is an issue that is likely to worsen before it gets better as hospital systems have prized the financial bottom line over staff health salaries, excuse me, over staff health and salaries, akin to the major health insurance giants prizing their bottom line over the responsible and reasonable provider reimbursement and patient services. Witness the 21, excuse me, 2021 revenues of Atrium Healthcare here in Charlotte, North Carolina of $8.67 billion with a B and United Healthcare's 2020 revenue of $55 billion with a B as two examples of profits driving all decisions. The healthcare exodus is a, is, is a very big problem because as people get more fatigued and more frustrated with the systems, they are more likely to quit because they don't feel indebted to a group that is more likely to praise profit over their sense of self and their own salaries. These issues will worsen in my mind. Number seven, Dr. Danny Benjamin was back on the podcast and he gave us a few more comments to share this week. One, masking works in schools full stop to help reduce the spread of infectious disease and especially COVID when circulating virus level is high. Each community's risk tolerance will dictate the choice on their clarity of what to do with regard to masking in the context of vaccination and community viral prevalence. Two, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine is approved for the five to 11 year old age range. This allows kids to get fully vaccinated by January 1 of 2022. 
if they and their parents so choose to do so preparing for the second half of the school year. Three, the vaccine is super safe, super immunogenic, and super effective that works at the three-week designed interval. We do not have data based on the regulatory framework in order to push the second dose out to 12 weeks like some studies have shown to be more beneficial. Okay, quick hit number eight. New information about SARS-2 origins based on some research from Michael Rorby in the journal Science is available to read. They are seeing a cluster of initial cases in the Wuhan animal market, which appears to possibly be the pandemic's ground zero. You can get the link to that article in the newsletter uh, written for. Number nine, from the JAMA Network paper, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the mean number of daily cases was 68,468. The incidence of COVID-19 peaked on January 8, 2021, with an estimated 295,000 U.S. individuals receiving a diagnosis of confirmed COVID-19. Chronic olfactory dysfunction, or COD, due to SARS-CoV-2 emerged in August 2020, six months after the pandemic began. There was a steady increase in the cumulative number of U.S. individuals with chronic olfactory dysfunction through April 2021. Starting in May 2021, the analysis, predict, analysis predicted a near exponential increase in the slope of cumulative number of U.S. individuals with chronic olfactory dysfunction through August. Based on indeterminate ex, intermediate estimates, the number of U.S. individuals expected to develop chronic olfactory dysfunction by August 2021 will be 712,268. Based on low estimates for each event, the number of U.S. individuals who are expected to develop the same problem is 170,238. And based on the higher end estimate, it could be up to 1.6 million. This comes to us from Con et al. in 2021. This data set falls in line with what I'm seeing in clinic. A large number of teenagers and their parents have either not developed a normal taste and smell response post-illness or have no taste and or smell at all. The disruption of the vitality of the support cells of the, of the olfactory nerves by SARS-2 appears to be long-lasting in some individuals. Many of my patients are reporting well over a year without normal sensory function. This is yet another really good reason to get vaccinated if you are a teenager or older, as this event does not occur when the mRNA vaccines are given, to my knowledge. Number 10, breast milk obtained from mothers. Post-natural infection and post-mRNA vaccines show SARS-2-specific antibody responses that offer neutralizing benefits to their babies. From JAMA Pediatrics, Dr. Young reported these results. 77 women, women and children dyads were divided into two groups, 61% or 47 patients in the infection group, 39% or 30 in the vaccinated group. And they state, quote, infection was associated with a robust and quick IgA response in human milk that was stable out 90 days after diagnosis. Vaccination was associated with a more uniform IgG-dominant response with concentrations increasing after each vaccine dose and beginning to decline by 90 days after the second dose. Vaccination was associated with increased human milk IgA after the first dose only. Human milk collected after infection and vaccination exhibited micro-neutralization activity. Micro-neutralization activity increased throughout time in the vaccine group only, but was higher in the infection group versus the vaccination group. Both IgA and non-IgA, or IgG-containing fractions of human milk from both participants with infection and those who were vaccinated exhibited micro-neutralization activity against SARS-CoV-2. This comes to us from Young et al., 2021. So the take-home here is very clear. The benefits of breast milk continue to astound. Both vaccination and natural infection are adequately priming maternal immunity against SARS-CoV-2 for mom and her babe. All right, folks, let's get back to living with spunk and vigor. 
this is a, a, a very, very trying time we've been living with, this pandemic of COVID-19. And now uh, in the next installment of this COVID newsletter, which will be COVID update number 50, that's going to be released this Monday in written form, Omicron is going to be the new spotlight shining issue that we have going on. We're going to be looking to see what's going on with this new viral variant and is it a player? I suspect it's going to be as infectious as Delta, if not more, but less deadly, but that's a guess. Um, We don't know, but it's going to be two to three weeks before we have really solid data, especially with vaccine escape data. Um, Overall, I think the state of North Carolina, at least, is moving in the right direction with most areas opening up and not huge spikes in disease, but even better, the decoupling of hospitalization and death um, continues. We're not seeing huge amounts of people dying, um, even with a slight increase in cases. That is a blessing. Um, if you haven't been vaccinated, I highly encourage you to. Um, and, you know, just keep living healthy, making great choices with food and sleep and all the things that make a difference in your immune system's function. And as always, hug those kids. All right, so let's just do the disclaimer and then close this out. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a good day, folks.